Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends. We are all theologians. We come from four different countries on three continents. My name is James Eglinton. I teach Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh. Joined today by my friends Corey Brock, who is the minister of St. Columba's Free Church here in Edinburgh, Scotland, originally from the United States, and Marinus de Jong, uh, pastor of the Osterpark Kirk in Amsterdam in the Netherlands and also a researcher at the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Kampen, Utrecht. Okay, today we are talking about the place of um, the cities and how we think about the city in relation to places where people live that are not the city. Um, so rural areas, towns, um, suburbia. And we're thinking about all of that in relation to neo-Calvinism. Um, I think when I first started to think in a different kind of way uh, about cities in relation to neo-Calvinist theology, it was originally through an essay that I read by Tim Keller. I think the essay is called It Takes a City to Raise a Child, uh, which, which is a play on... Um, it takes a village to raise a child, which is um, a way of thinking about how um, you know, rearing a child really takes takes a community and, and a village is this kind of ideal place to do that. But Keller's argument is that, um, I guess what he's trying to overturn is ways that Christians at that point in his Western context tended to think about um, suburbia as a great place to raise, a, you know, raise Christian children because the city is kind of pagan and dark and full of all kinds of awful influences. So Christians move into the city to get established in life, but then once they want to start a family, they um, retreat from the city to a rural area or to a suburban area. Um, but he, I, when I read his piece, It Takes a City to, to Raise a Child, it made me think in all kinds of different ways about um, the city as a habitable space for Christian families. And that there are all kinds of fairly unique things that an urban environment provides for Christian kids as they grow up that are actually harder to replicate in the suburbs, like having Christian role models who are in you know, in their early twenties, um, which is uh, you know is harder to come by in in rural churches, for example. And kids when they grow up find it really hard to imagine themselves as their parents who seem so much older, but they can more easily imagine themselves as um, the twenty year olds that they know or the twenty somethings they know, and. Um, but it was quite a realistic piece of writing as well on all of the difficulties of raising a family, a Christian family, in an urban environment because you have less space, it's more expensive, um, and the, there are all kinds of pressures on time that are very different to living in a rural area. But I think the kind of mentality that I came from before I read that piece was very much the sort of mentality, albeit in a Scottish context, that Keller was addressing I grew up in a, in a suburb, um, in Scottish suburbia, in a smallish town of about 80,000 people. It's now, it has now officially changed to become a city. So maybe when we're setting out some of the groundwork for what we're talking about today, we could talk about what we mean by city, because the same place at one point can not be a city, and then in its cultural context can become a city, and the place otherwise remains the same. But anyway, I grew up where I grew up, it was a town at that point. I grew up very much in a suburban kind of context, you know, in a housing area that, that was built in the 1980s um, and I guess grew up looking at the, the bigger cities as, again, places that Christians go to to study, to you know, develop into something where you can have a job, um, but then you move back to, you know, you move out of the city again when you, if you want to 
settle down, get married, have a family. And I didn't really think of, have a way of thinking about cities as actually a long-term environment to be in. Uh, but Keller's uh, way of thinking about it really challenged my thinking. And uh, lo and behold, you know, some a few decades on, I live in the capital city of my country in Edinburgh and I have four kids and um, have a kind of different sort of life and a different kind of place than I probably imagined I would have before I read that. Um, Neo-Calvinism does have that kind of popular, you know, image of being very pro-urban. Um, and I think the, like that kind of way of thinking from Keller as a neo-Calvinist has generationally has changed, has made Christians more open to being in, in urban environments. Um, but it has also given rise to some common critiques that neo-Calvinism is excessively urban, that it's urban-centric, that, um, that it's kind of elitist in terms of its focus on big cities that it looks down on Christians who choose to live in suburbia or who choose to live in rural areas, for example, and that it's not really a theology for rural life or for small-town life or something like that. Um, so that's kind of what we're, we're talking about today, thinking from some different perspectives. So I've got some stuff that I'd like to discuss from Abraham Kuyper's Theology of Cities. Um, I know that Marinus has some stuff from Klaas Hilder, who also had some interesting thoughts on cities Corey's going to bring the goods, hopefully in terms of biblical theology and cities in a way that um, meshes together with all of this. Um, but that's that's a bit of my background um, in terms of how I grew up thinking about cities as opposed to non-city environments. Um, what, I mean, for, for you two, um, what's, what are your stories? Is it relatable at all, you know, growing up in Mississippi and, and growing up in, in the Netherlands? Yeah, so for, for me... Um, I think cities were always part of my life. My, um, like my grandfather, he was from Rotterdam. So that's like one of the biggest cities here. And he also lived there all of his life. And later my other grandparents also went to live in Rotterdam. Um, so I grew up in a more, I think similar to you, James, like a suburban town, like a place, um, which is like doesn't have like it's not a village nor is it a city. Um, so cities were just always part of it, but I think they were always kind of remote still. Um, and there's also suspicion towards the city. I think and where I grew up, and especially as a Christian, um, and I have living been living in Amsterdam now for three and a half years, and Amsterdam I think is for Dutch. Uh, in the Dutch context, is like the apex of the city. Um, that is the, some say the only real city in the Netherlands, um, and and um, and I think the prejudices towards Amsterdam are really like different from all the other cities and have like all the stereotypes of a city. Like um, is and Amsterdam, I think has that. We've discussed that in, in earlier episodes. Has all of those prejudices also across the globe, thanks to a very successful marketing campaign. Um, of being a very liberal city, the city of weed, the city of the red light district, etc. Well, it is very similar. Uh, looked at that in the Netherlands, and also being a pastor there, uh, there's there's a lot more to talk about, of course, in that sense. But it also it also attaches itself to me now because I'm the pastor from Amsterdam, which seems to mean for a lot of people in the Netherlands, all say a lot of things about me, true or not, but. Um, so I think that shows there is, well, in the way I was brought up in my tradition, 
the new Calvinist churches here, um, yeah, a little bit of a suspicion and a lot of prejudices towards cities. I grew up in a town, I would call it a town, um, we were not a, it was not a suburb because we were not in near any kind of, of city. Although the question I'm, I'm about to maybe have to you guys is again, let's, let's, let's define this, these cities, because I, I think I have now developed a different definition of what a city is than I think what I would have thought even a few years ago. Uh, but I grew up in a town, I grew up in a French Catholic town, largely, and um, right on the Mississippi River that looked over the, the bluff of the Mississippi River into Louisiana. And it was settled by the French um, in early America and remains a very French Catholic setting. Um, and it was, a, it was a town that had a very clear cultural consensus. Uh, it had a centerpiece, a, a Catholic basilica, and um, everything revolved in some ways around the, the main street where this Catholic where this Roman Catholic Basilica was. And I went to school uh, at the school associated with that Basilica. And so I grew up in a town, never lived in a city, uh, spent my entire childhood and into my university years in small towns only. Um, this town was about 25,000, 30,000. And I moved to a city, I suppose, before I came to Edinburgh, Jackson, the capital. But um, Jackson is is uh, really a big town uh, in, in relationship to other cities. So that means that Edinburgh is the first city I've ever lived in. And I love living in the city. I mean, ha, my, my wife and I, we always say that we can, we can either live in the city or we want to be, we want to be farmers. You know, those are the two, those are the two good options. I think um, we want to either live on the land and off the land or be right in the heart of the city. Um, so those are the two places that we've kind of grown to love. And I think that that is also driven for me by, by a theology that actually corresponds to the goodness of both the rural life and the city life and how those aren't dichotomous. Those are uh, two things that God says yes to, I think, across the Bible. So, But my, my thought, James, based off what you had asked earlier, is how do you guys think about what makes a city? And I know that in the contemporary world, we we define cities based off population, I believe, is, is kind of the main mark. Maybe it's also uh, acreage or, or square miles or whatever it might be. Um, and I think, you know, let's say you take, take it from the perspective of Scripture. I think Scripture has a view of the city that's very different than that because um, a, a lot of the places that the Bible would call a city would have populations that are much too small for, for us to be uh, calling them cities in the contemporary. And so this designation of town that we now have, to me, is a, a and this is just, just me rolling out my own thoughts, but a development of um, uh, just population increase across human history. Um, and so I guess the way I, I tend to think more about a city is the way, way that the space that humans gather around to occupy, the way that it's structured, and so to me, um, there's a big difference in uh, a town and a city, which I think in like a biblical theological perspective are both cities, places where human gather, human beings gather that have a center, some kind of defined obvious center, whether that be um, the local church, the school, um, the primary space where the market takes place. Uh, if you have those things and you have... Um, 
a space gathered around it. I think you can talk about a city. And to me, the only category that that's not that is, or the two categories would be to live in a rural context where you're, you're occupying a bigger space of land and there's much bigger gaps. Or that's the rural, right? Or uh, the suburb. And I think the suburb uh, is not not defined by proximity to a city necessarily, to the urban. It doesn't have to be, but rather uh, suburbia. And maybe this is an American mindset. And that's why I ask you you guys. Um, suburbia to me, or the suburban, is actually when you create a space for people to live that has uh, a, cons- a more consumeristic center. So maybe that's the strip mall or the, the, in the 1980s and 90s, the mall, you know, or um, nothing but a commercial space that kind of gathers people. And I think when you, when you only have that, then you can start talking about a suburbia sort of context rather than a city context. And so I think we ought to, I, I completely understand uh, what we mean when we talk about the global city or something like that. Uh, but towns, in my mind, are also cities though they're not necessarily urban. Um, so those are some of the distinctions I guess I, I've thought about, but I would love to hear what, what you guys think about what a city is. Yeah, so I think that the definitions are actually really challenging because they vary so much from culture to culture. So in a technical sense in the UK, city is a legal status given to a place. Uh, like I referenced, I grew up in Inverness, which was a town, and then it was given city rights Although the place you know, didn't change overnight or anything, it just had a new status. In Scotland, about a week or two ago, Dunfermline became moved from being a town to being a city, and you know, King Charles came and proclaimed that Dunfermline is now a city. Um, but it does, so it does tend to be larger places. Um, so you know, it would be difficult to imagine city rights if you had like 500 people who lived there, but you don't need a million people. In Scotland, we only have one city that's like that, Glasgow. But... So I find this a little bit weird to navigate when I moved to the Netherlands because you do, there isn't really a Dutch word for town. Well, you have town as, as a garden, as like a walled space, okay? But you have either stad or dorp and um, as city or village. And there's not a category in between. So I moved to Kampen, which is a, a city, a stad, but has, I don't know, 50,000 people or something like that. You know, you can cycle across the whole thing in 10 minutes. Um, but but then you would talk to other people who would say that they came from a village and it was much larger. And so those categories, like the, the, the language all breaks down a bit, actually, when you're trying to move between cultures. So I think having, trying to find some kind of way to think about the, like the essence of the place um, in order to develop really good categories to think through is, is really important, as you say, Corey. So I think a, a very useful neo-Calvinist text that does this is by Abraham Kuyper, and it's in volume one of Pro Reggae, um, which is work that Kuyper did after his term as prime minister. So it's really interesting because it's the late Kuyper, and it's Kuyper trying to think through what do you do with life as a Christian? Um, it, you know, after It really starts to sink in for Kuyper that's um, that there's a distinct kind of secularization that's going on and that Christianity is, in cultural terms, you know, moving into really troubled waters in the West. So it's a really interesting period in Kuiper's life. And uh, so in Pro Reggae Volume 1, there's an essay, The Great World Cities, where he starts to, he tries to develop some categories to understand 
um, that there is a class of population centers across the world. So he's thinking New York, Berlin, Paris, London, and they are distinct population centers. Like there's something about this category of particular places that are just massive compared to everything else, um, where the num there's just the sheer number of people from different places who conglomerate there makes the nature of living there different to living in smaller population centers. And it, and it kind of gets at some of the ways that, that's, uh, even to return to that Tim Keller essay on it takes a city to raise a child. I think one of the, the, one of the things there in that essay that you see in Kuiper a hundred and something years before is, uh, so for, and for Keller, this is a virtue in those really big population centers by necessity, because there's so many people and they've come from so many different backgrounds and places and they all you know, live cheek by jowl, um, they are extremely diverse. And so the social fabric is, is really diverse and that makes it quite uncomfortable to, in lots of ways as well, because you lack the common cohesion of life that you find in you know, anything that's not in that group of extremely large, diverse places. So if, you know, if we're thinking of like village, town, Stotje in Dutch or something like that. They're much more culturally uh, homogenous uh, in a way that like is typical of suburban life as well. So, you know, the kind of suburb that I grew up in, you know, was created on a hillside in the 1980s. And so history all begins at the same time. And that means that everyone who buys into it, buys into it at the same time. And then that means that they tend to have, you know, they've got a kind of common origin story for how their community came into being. Um, they're all of a similar kind of socio-economic demographic background because you know the same opportunity to move to the same kind of place is available to them all, and um, you know so it was you know it was like white Scottish middle class um, you know everyone had a similar kind of background there um, almost everyone um, and you know living in, a, in an urban environment is just not like that it's really different and. Um, so the, I think that's the kind of basic categorization that Kuiper tries to get to. Um, but I think if you, if you try and update that, um, you know, in Kuiper's uh, era, it's quite a small number of places that he thinks of as these world cities. Um, but I think that a hundred years on, just the kind of global diffusion of people um, across the world, you know, in a, like in the end, after the end of the colonial era, I mean, that you know, facilitates so much movement of people and realignments of where you know, uh, cultural groupings relocate to different parts of the world. And very often, you know, they, they end up in city environments and then they, they kind of expand the kind of demographic diversity and so on. And for Kuiper, there are all kinds of distinct challenges that he sees. Like a lot of the things that Tim Keller would talk about as positives, I think Kuiper saw more as, as difficulties, actually. Um, because for Kuiper, you know, the, I guess the, like the, the fact that you live right next to people who have a completely different take on life, for example, um, for Kuiper, that like, he tends to accentuate how that creates anonymity. Like your neighbors don't think like you, therefore you're quite distant from them. And um, for Kuiper, living in you know not living in one of these massively diverse places means that you're part of a community that forms you, uh, and, and the kind of homogeneity of formation isn't really a bad thing for 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 Kuiper. He thinks that. It, it promotes kind of better moral formation, spiritual formation, and so on. And it's much harder to have that if you if you live in a city where your neighbor just doesn't live by the same norms as you, um, and, and you lose out on something there. Whereas I think for for like zoom forward a century and for Keller, that's a really positive thing. 
that, um, that that means that you have a sharper distinction between faith and in the gospel and unbelief, and um, that you're actually forced to to be more proactive in explaining why you're against the grain um, as a Christian in this big diverse environment. It's interesting, yeah. I for the Dutch context, it's um, just like just like in the UK. I think that it's a legal thing when you're a city, so you have it is places which are a lot larger, but people still. People know that. People know if, if it's a city or if it's a village. Um, we said only two options in Dutch, indeed. Um, and I think, like, I think the diversity, like, number of people is helpful for definition, I think. But And diversity is also, if I just think about how cities, what defines a city in the imagination of people, um, diversity is definitely part of it. Um, but also, I think, is a certain... Um, how how to how to put this? this is a sort of like a, um, I think a cultural presence, um, in the sense that I mean there there's not you you're probably not going to find a theater, uh, or maybe even a cinema in a village, so, or maybe a small one, um, but then, like having music halls, venues, um, a football stadium, if that is culture, um. All, uh, all these kind of things, I think, are are very important in the imagination of what makes a city. Um, even though, like, yeah, that's really a, a difference in it, whether it's a difference in your actual everyday life. It might even be the case that people in cities go to theaters more often than people who don't. But the fact that they live in a place where they are, I think, makes it. Is, I would say it has some defining. Um, is, is, is part of what it means to be a city. Um, so here's so a question for you, okay, with yeah. updating that again. Um, and I recognize a, a lot in what you're saying, but um, in the 21st century, we have global mass media and you might live in a tiny hamlet, but you still have access to exactly the same media sources. You know, you, you can't get to the cinema because there isn't one, but you have Netflix. Um, and you know we all have our smartphones all across the Western world, all, all that kind of stuff. So you're, you're, the the theater comes to you um, through technology now. Do you think that makes uh, does that make anything different in how we think through culturally what is a city and, and what is a village? Yeah, of course it. Of, yeah, it's it's a good question. Of course, it, it makes a big difference. Um, in some ways, what used to be the privilege of the cities is now for everyone all over the world. Um, if you don't have a government which cuts you off from um, the, the internet, of course, which also happens to more and more people in the world, or just don't have the facilities. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. So it, it does change it. it. It makes it like a, it, this is like the global village idea, right? Um, so yeah, that's true. But still, I think the place where you are is still different from your phone or from Netflix. So this simple fact that you have the soccer stadium um, and you have the theater and the big cinemas and the museums in the place where you live have an impact on the people who live there. And also going there is different from seeing it from like from your couch uh, because you will see people, you will meet other people, maybe even, even if you don't talk to them, they still are there. So you're you're just part of a different community, I think, still. But yeah, you're right that it does make a, it does make a difference. 
So I, I think in in my mind, the difference that it makes is at least how I grew up. I, I had this kind of imagination where you can imagine Christians belong in smaller places in rural areas, and the city is is really godless. So it's harder to imagine, you know, that you would go to the city to find Christians or be part of Christian community. Um, just because the city is much more secularized and rural areas much less so. But I think in Scotland now, rural places are really profoundly secularized and Christian community is just because of depopulation is much harder to come by there. And I think that in many regards, at least in Scotland, um, it's easier to be part of vibrant, edifying Christian community in larger numbers, much easier if you live in a city than if you live in a rural area. Uh, and, you know, rural young people are, they're not really different to urban young people in terms of how they are shaped, how they're formed by Scottish secular culture because of mass media. Um, in some ways, it's maybe more extreme in, in urban areas because you don't have a kind of diversity of different religious communities, even like through immigration that make urban areas less secular. I think it's the case all across the UK, actually. So if you go to London, I mean, that London has the highest percentage of Christians anywhere in the UK. And a huge part of that is because uh, because of like, Nigerian immigration. Um, you don't really get that if you live in, in a, you know, a tiny village, but you will get very you know, radically secularized British culture, mainstream like, white British culture coming to you all the time, um, but with very little Christian influence. So, um, I mean, you know, th there's this kind of historical narrative that's, um, like I was shocked to discover that the word pagan, like its etymology is actually from like country dweller. That, um, but then when you think back to the early spread of Christianity, it spread through cities. And if you wanted to find pagan pre-Christian religion and culture, you had to leave the city and go to rural areas um, because they were the last places to be reached. But I was, I, I was really shocked when I first realized that and read a bit of that history when I was a lot younger, because it was the complete opposite impression that I had, which was that Christianity really is a rural faith and it doesn't do well in cities. And uh, yeah, because I think quite differently on that now. Yeah, the Kuiper makes me think of what you said earlier about Kuiper's argument where he located some of the goods of a smaller space, a town or a village, and the possibility of the homogenous of the culture and its protections. But as you were just saying, as you both were just pointing out, um, you, you can't make that argument any longer because you've got the world in your pocket and every every um, young person especially um, is completely globalized when as soon as they uh, put put an iPhone in their pocket and the other thing I was thinking about about the maybe the some of the goods of the city uh, in relation to your to the question James about Netflix and bringing the theater into the home and all those sorts of things is that, what the city provides now, I think, especially more than ever, is the opportunity to hear Jesus's commands to us about uh, the love of neighbor, and and the, especially according to his definition of what is a neighbor. You know, I think of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter ten, where the lawyer is trying to trying to catch Jesus, and um, he asks him about. Uh, the definition of the neighbor, and, and of course, the person there has in mind that there, there are these people that are, are his neighbors, and that there are those that aren't his neighbors, and the ones that are are his neighbors are the ones that are most like him. And uh, Jesus comes and tells this parable of the Good Samaritan and redefines the category 
of what a neighbor is through the lens of the the person that is totally other, uh, totally unexpected, that the, the Samaritan was the great neighbor of the Jewish person in the narrative. And um, the city is what offers that. The, the city is, is not exclusively, but most often the place where the Christian can have the opportunity um, to, to be the Good Samaritan and to see neighbors that are so wholly different than them and other than them, and yet understand uh, and obey Jesus' commands. Now, of course, it's not exclusive, but um, part of the, that, the diver- diversification of the concept of neighbor is very central to the Good Samaritan narrative. I mean, I think as well of the Tower of Babel and of the reversal that we have in, in Acts chapter 2. And when Pentecost comes to town and the Spirit comes down, and of course speaking in tongues there is a, is a reference to speaking known languages like Aramaic and Latin and whatever else it might have been. And, um, you know, you've got there this pronouncement that uh, the city of God that God is building and that we can witness to is a city that's full of um, people who uh, wouldn't normally be called neighbor, in, in, even in the ancient context. And, and today, the, the first person we wouldn't think of as the person we would normally call neighbor. Now, God's said that, well, that's the church. That's what I'm doing in the church. So uh, so it, there's a sense in which the city provides, I think, Christians with the best opportunities to obey these commands and to uh, think well about what the church eschatologically looks like in its gathering in urban centers on, on a Sunday. One way that I think about also you know, have updating some of the older resources on city as diverse as opposed to rural as homogenous is that I think rural places, at least again in a Scottish context, are much less homogenous than they were 50 or 60 years ago. Um, so you also have a lot of population migration um, that occurs. So globally, population migration is towards cities. Um, and when you look at the forecasts for the you know the coming decades, it's quite like incredible it just how much of the world's population will be urban uh, by the you know by the time the, the end of the, the century. But you do still have um, people who are pushed out of cities for all kinds of socioeconomic reasons, um, and they end up in rural areas. So I think if you, in like in a Scottish context, if you go if you were to go back, like let's say the village that my my family comes from on the Isle of Lewis on my maternal side, um, when my grandparents lived there, um, in, you know, in the early the first half of the twentieth century when they were growing up there. Um, their village was was extremely homogenous. Everyone spoke Gaelic. Everyone was from there. Um, there weren't really people living there who hadn't grown up there. Um, but then across the, the, the middle of the 20th century, you have lots and lots of um, emigration to the New World, to mainland Scotland, just because there weren't economic opportunities to stay in this village. But now there's been this kind of flow of people back to the village and to this island in the Outer Hebrides, but they're from all over the place. Um, and they've got all kinds of different reasons for why they've moved there, but they're not at all from, you know, the roots aren't in the local culture. They haven't been formed by that culture. And there are very few people left in the village who, you know, whose parents and grandparents were from there who are Gaelic speakers, for example. So you do have like quite a, you have like, all, like urban kind of diversity of people trying who need to work out how to live alongside one another with a bit more space because it's you know a small village on an island 
Um, so it's not like living, you know, in a, like in an apartment block where your next door neighbor is from a very different background to you. But, you know, the people who live 100 yards along the road might see the world in very different terms to you. And they've moved there from elsewhere. So you do, I think, I, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of um, people who set up urban and rural, at least in the Scottish context, as you know, in quite outdated terms. And I think that, that actually the, the resources that both need in working out, uh, you know, especially for the church in both contexts, how do you minister to people who are from, you know, who are formed in very different spaces? I think those resources are actually substantially the same. Yeah, so I, I've just been also living in a city now, a, a relatively big city, which is not even a million, uh, a million inhabitants, but for Dutch standards, a big city. Um, I also have, like I think more than before, become more critical of, of the city. And I agree with you that the village is also, I think, an ideal that no, just no longer exists. Um, although I think in the Netherlands, the situation is a little bit different. Uh, I think we have a little bit less of that. Um, so I, th I would also say that in the Dutch context, the rural areas are more Christian uh, than, I mean, churches in the cities are often struggling a lot more. You will find no big churches in cities, uh, or few at least. A couple of uh, a couple of months ago, I just I wrote an article in the, in the in the national newspaper together with a colleague here in Amsterdam, um, just asking people in the rural areas uh, to come over to Amsterdam as Christians, uh, come and live here because otherwise we will just have to close the churches here, and I think it's not hypothetical to say that uh, churches may just vanish. Uh, over time from the cities here in the Netherlands. Um, so it's not at all like in like the example of London you use. Of course, migrant churches uh, make it different. Um, also in Amsterdam, um, that, that's definitely like a, a movement in the other other direction. Um, so that, that definitely a, a good, would be a good nuance to my view. Um, but I, I also have to think here, it's, this, is not a, this is not a new Calvinist but it's a French Protestant philosopher, Jacques Ellul is his name. Uh, he wrote his book, Ni Feu Ni Lieu, in French. I have no idea what the, the, the English translation um, of that, probably something with the city. Um, but he has this fascinating biblical history. It's, it's been a while I read it, so I, I don't have it all already here. But, but he, is, he is, what I remember, is very critical of the city. And he, he just talks about like how the, how the technological and how... How it how it kind of becomes a god in itself, the city. I'm not sure if those are his words, but he, he it's it's an idolatrous place, which just moves, which is bad for humans, and also also moves God to um, moves people away from God. So yeah, so I think it's also, and I think he's right in some ways, and has also a lot of biblical backing there. Also, in, in being critical as did the, the story of the Tower of Babel you just mentioned, Corey, I think is an example of it. But in the Bible, there's of course also the other. Um, there's there 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 seems to be a different. Um, something we also mentioned is like it started with a garden, um, but it ends with a city. It's the New Jerusalem descending from heaven, and a lot happens in cities, and and indeed in in the Christianity spread through the cities. So there is this kind of two sides there seem to be on how we how we have to look at the city. Do you guys think? And I know that Corey, you've been thinking about this a lot 
in recent months, and maybe you have too, Marinus. Do you think that in the New Testament, so I'm thinking specifically in the book of Acts, do you think that there is a specific strategy in the early church that you have to prioritize cities? Um, so to reach the surrounding countryside, for example, um, this is just where the, the early Christians go. They spread through the cities, spread the gospel there, plant churches, move on. Yeah, there's a debate about this in biblical studies. And um, it's really, it, it had a very prominent moment over the past decade, uh, a few a few times where people were writing about this pretty consistently. I, my personal take on it is that when I read through the book of Acts, I think the answer is yes. Um, although there were responses to that thesis um, by a number of scholars that came in and said that, that that's something that's being read in, but not really there. But I do think when you look across the book of Acts, you see very clearly, I think in Paul's ministry especially, this movement from urban center to urban center and then a fanning out. So Paul tends to move toward urban centers and then to move outward into surrounding contexts and then do it again. And um, I think that Paul very much had a had a vision that, that if you could win the city, that it would have a huge impact on the village and rural context. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, James, about the meaning of pagan, that very much was the case. The city is, cities were actually easier in the time. And, uh, you know, you've got, you've got books like Rodney Stark's book uh, on cities that's, that's all about this movement and argues for this movement. I mean, I want to balance the scales and say that I, I've been very excited and, and happy to see so many initiatives for rural ministry. That's something I saw popping up in America quite often before I moved. And now it's happening here. So even in my own church context, we're talking and, and starting these different rural ministry initiatives and uh, these visions of planting more and more churches in the rural context. And all of that, as you mentioned at the beginning, James, is a response. It's a response to the emphasis that's been placed on cities and the Reformed theological community for the past while. And a lot of that is related to neo-Calvinism. Um, but uh, I think all of us would say that we, we're excited to see rural ministry initiatives popping up left and right. And at the same time, th- there's no choice to be made here, right? Because at the same time, we also have to say, and Marinas, you were, you were talking about this, that we've got to go where the people are. You know, the, the church has got to go where the people are. And the people are, are going to cities more and more and more. And so the church has got to be willing to do that. And it's pretty cliche now, but a lot of people will say, you know, you've got more of the image of God per per square inch in the city than, than anywhere else. And uh, But that's very true, right? Uh, we're, we're a ministry to people. And so, uh, and I, I think, I do think that both Paul's example and the movement of redemptive history itself lends us in those directions, right? Uh, from garden to the, to the garden city at the end, um, that God is building a city of God, and and we need farmers, right? And so we're we we want uh, tons of people living in the rural communities and um, and the the cities and the rural serving one another, uh, both in food production and the common grace gifts. Um, you know the cities the cities give the give the rural communities good Netflix shows and and. Um, and they and the rural communities give the cities a food to put on the table, and that's a be- that's beautiful. That's a good thing, right? When it's done rightly and and not sinfully. So there's common grace and antithesis running through both spaces, right? And so um, 
So yeah, but I do I do think there's a ministry model laid out for us in in the book of Acts as not as not as prescriptive but as descriptive. So I, I want to talk about common grace and antithesis then and how we think about cities and I, I'm thinking particularly you know to go back to the Kuiper text that small group of of you know mega cities you know your Paris and you know, Berlin and Amsterdam and, you know, London, New York. I would put Edinburgh Tokyo. there too. Okay, Tokyo. Edinburgh is much, much smaller than all of those places. But the, the thing that Kuiper highlights about these places is that they've grown organically. And, um, you know, Kuiper isn't really a, like, he's not a huge fan of the planned city. Like, he's really critical of lots of American cities that have been, you know, they haven't grown organically. It's all very structured and so on. Whereas for him, there's like, like a romantic charm about a city that, it's more kind of ragged because, in terms of how it's laid out, because it's grown in a less controlled way, um, and that tells its own story. So he really loves those kinds of cities, but he thinks that that the organic nature of these cities in that particular class, he thinks that it's it's both really beautiful but also very seductive. Um, that each of the like when you when you're in Paris, you know you're in Paris. Like I, I remember the first time that I went to Paris. Um, flew there and then traveled into the city center on the metro and I, I don't think I'll ever forget what it was like to step out of the metro station all of a sudden to be in the middle of Paris and you just you know exactly where you are in the world it is so beautiful it's over it's almost overwhelming and it's so unique and you, you're, you're aware that you're in a very distinct place um, and all these cities are like that They're, they are so unique and they have this very compelling power um, and for Kuiper, you know, he'll attribute that on the one, or he, he'll view that on the one hand through the lens of common grace, to talk about appreciating these places. But through antithesis, he'll also talk about their seductive power negatively. So in, the, in this essay on the great world cities, he writes about how there's almost an enslaving power once you move to one of these cities and identify with it. You move to New York and New York offers you the chance to become a New Yorker. And that's a big difference to a homogenous village. You you move to it and you're an incomer. You can never really become from there unless you're born there. And even then, you know, if one of your parents isn't from there quite often, then you're not truly one of the locals. Um, whereas cities give you this, they, they invite you to become part of its identity. And they're all kind of rivals to one another as well. So... Um, and I think this is a really insightful thing that Kuiper says. And it's kind of borne out in my experience too, that if you talk to a Londoner, um, a lot of the time they think about themselves in in a kind of horizontal competition with New Yorkers, with Amsterdamers. They don't really think of themselves as, you know, like London vis-a-vis -vis Birmingham or Edinburgh or something like that. You're not even on their radar. Uh, and for Kuiper, there's this kind of enslaving power that, or seductive power that goes with that where you give yourself over then to like, the formative process of that city to become part of it. And, and it becomes this, like for, for him then, actually all of these things together, the sum total of them is that they are the great Babylon that the Bible talks about in its tale of two cities. Um, so you have to live within it with common grace, but also with antithesis. And if you don't have both of those, then you'll just, you'll hate it or you'll be crushed by it. Or, um, but what does that look like for each of you in practice? You know, you both live in very enticing cities. Amsterdam is unique and incredible. Edinburgh is as well. Um, how do you how do you love the city, but not be an idolater of the city, the cities that you live in? Do you find this hard? Or? Yeah, James, it's it's good to 
frame it that way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it difficult, I think, to do that. Um, I think my, my tendency is to be critical of the city, so emphasize the antithesis. And maybe also, and this is something I realize while we are having this discussion, I am idealizing the rural and the village. Um, um, while I live here, and probably when I live in a village, I will start doing the other, the, exactly the opposite of what I'm doing right now. So it's really helpful you do this. And I, 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 it's, all, it's also Tim Keller who is often like, when I listen to a podcast, hear him or hear one of his sermons, I'm like, oh yeah, he always has this like love the village where he is. So maybe loving the village, the, loving the city I'm in is more difficult for me um, than being critical of the city I'm in. But I think that is part, partly also because I think I feel the idolatrous power a city has over me. Like that it... That it that it kind of asks me to surrender uh, to the city and to become an Amsterdammer with everything what that in, entails. So there is this attraction, this attraction I feel, and I think it's also part of that attraction that that makes that I'm here because I could also have gone and and become a pastor somewhere else. Um. So yeah, I think that 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 kind of explains it. So yes, I do I do recognize what you say. Um. And and I but I think it's also as as important see it as an important part of my job as a pastor in this city, is to 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 learn people to do both these things. There are people who, in my congregation, who who despise the city, who have to live there, but really do not like it. Um, and there are people who adore it, who who really. Um, and and so I I have to navigate that I think as a pastor, and also navigate it in my own heart, of course, um, to learn to do both that to to like see how the city it can lead to idolatry and ask that of you, um, and to 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 as a Christian recognize that, but to also see a lot of the workings of common grace and of the Holy Spirit in the city, and to to see the beauty of it. Um, yeah, the beauty of the of the architecture, the beauty of all the cultural things that are going, and the beauty of the diversity that's in the city, uh, and all what that gives. So, yeah, I do recognize it, and it's it's helpful to have this have this have this discussion. I think also for for my ministry. Anywhere people gather, there are there is the the city of man, and anywhere people gather, there you've got Babylon happening. Um, no matter how big or how small, and anywhere people gather, you also have got variations or products of uh, of the common graces, the common grace that God gives His favor to people who might not believe in Him, but also the particular favors, the the gifts themselves, right? And so when I think of the city, I think uh, the common grace and gifts that flow from it are much greater than the rural or the village in terms of the graces that are the product of human ingenuity, of human industry, of minds gathered together and the types of products that great thinking can offer. Uh, so the common graces in the cities are at their heights when it comes to architecture and uh, invention and scholarship and all sorts of these types of things. The common graces that you get from the rural are the common graces of God's gift of nature, of of uh, the beauty of the land, of the beauty of um, some of the 
more the arts that are more associated with rural life uh you know and, and so i think you're you're as you said james common grace and antithesis are happening in both spaces in different ways but babylon babylon and the city of god both gather wherever there are people and uh I mean, one of the ways I could play this out in terms of the goods of the city, what the city offers in that diversity in becoming a New Yorker, in becoming a, um, Amsterdam, I don't know, how would you say it? An Amsterdamite, maybe there's a Dutch word. Amsterdammer. Of course, I should know that. Yeah. Um, uh, whatever it may be, I guess because I've moved from the small town toward the city over my lifetime, one of the goods I've seen in, in, the, in what Kuiper was actually trying to critique was that in the small town context, the homogenous, as good as it can be, can also be such a massive problem for somebody that is an insider. So you can be an insider in a small town context or a village, but because you're an insider in a place that expects uh, uniformity, you become an outsider very easily and very quickly. And, you know, we, we saw, we've talked a lot about how moving to a city, there's, there's so much diversity and expectation and what you're going to, the clothing you're going to wear, you know, what, are you going to be a sports person or not? Are you going to be, are you going to play football or not? Are you, even in the local schools where everybody can actually find friendship a lot easier and everybody can actually find uh, relational capital with a group in a way that is good for, for their emotional health and their well-being, in a way where you're in a much smaller context or rural context, at least it was the case for me, that you know if you're bad at baseball, no matter how much of an insider you are, you're out. You're on the outside if you live in small-town Mississippi. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you don't have any interest in baseball. If you're, if you're not willing to play it and not good at it, you're on the outside looking in from the start of your childhood. And that, that kind of thing happens all the time if you don't dress exactly the right way. Whereas the city, I think, offers um, a diversity that's actually really healthy. And becoming a New Yorker, becoming a, a Berliner or whatever it might be actually is becoming um, maybe saying yes to appreciating uh, unity and diversity, the organic, you know, instead of the uniform. uniform. How do we approach it? Well, Jeremiah 29, it's cliche, but it's the Bible, right? Uh, seek her peace and prosperity. Yeah, maybe, maybe another thing to to mention and to maybe discuss, if you, if you have the time, is to, uh, at least in the Netherlands right now, that this this is one of the big, the big items in politics and in the media, is the dichotomy between rural areas and the cities. Um, we have, well, it's maybe too complicated to go into, but there's some some laws that are going to be passed um, about, uh, well, that have a lot of consequences for farmers. It's it's about climate change and about uh, uh, natural areas and they need to be preserved. And even a judge has now said that these laws have to be, have to be carried out. And then that's going to, what's going to happen is that a lot of farmers will just have to be bought out. They have to be like, they have to, are going to be forced to sell their, um, to sell their, their um, sell their firms and and move somewhere else, so um, and this has led to huge protests uh, in the Netherlands. And I think it you have similar things. I think 
in the US and also in France. It's a little bit different, and but it, it is very similar. And so now we have this people who take the Dutch flag and put it upside down as a symbol of their protest against the government and what's happening here. And so, yeah, th this is, and I think a big question is, and there's a lot of debate also among theologians and pastors, is what what is what should Christianity's position be? Uh, how should the churches respond? Especially since a lot of the churches, the bigger churches, as I just mentioned here, are in rural areas. And a lot of those farmers, they are Christians and they do go to a church. Yeah, so how, how, well, what is a good way to, to, re to respond to this and then to, to deal with this? And of course, those, I think the, the farmers or um, the people from the rural areas, they have a, it is not just these laws they're protesting against. They're just protesting against an arrogance of the cities um, and, and a sort of like decade long feeling that all the decisions are made in the cities. The rich people live there. Um, and they always look down upon the rural areas. We It's also connected to um, a huge gas field in the rural areas in the Netherlands where we have been extracting gas from and earned a lot of money. And now there's earthquakes. And actually it now turns out that we have known for decades those earthquakes are related to extracting the gas, uh, but just have ignored it. So it's just, and I, well, I think this is something that, that happens in all, I mean, you, you, you also have like the, the blue cities and the red countryside in the U.S. and there's there's a lot of those I think dichotomies um, around the world and that, that this is something that complicates I think the relationship and and also gives gives the cities um, a problem they have to deal with and also the Christians in the cities and in the rural areas to yeah to to do something to overcome the dichotomy and to to really make sure that there's a there's a there's a good balance between the two. Yeah, I think some of those issues are really recognisable in the UK as well. Um, the kind of London centrism that causes a lot of resentment in the rest of the UK. Um, and But also you see the same within Scotland with Edinburgh centrism and um, yeah, resentment that that can create in the rest of the country. And I think that it's just a problem in, um, in modern society that's it's really difficult to hold together um, urban and rural at the same time. I think if we go back to where we were earlier in the conversation, when I asked Corey the question about um, whether the New Testament has does have an urban-centric um, mission strategy, and I, I agree with Corey that I think it does as well, but I guess what's subtly powerful about that from from the perspective of modern Western culture with how bad a job it does of urban centrism to the, often to the neglect of rural areas is that the church in the New Testament, the church has a, has a strategy of um, how it will spread that is urban centric, not as an end in itself, but precisely because you can love your rural neighbor by having your first stepping stone your first stepping stones through these cities that the gospel reaches and that the way to reach our rural areas um, is precisely through the urban. And then you create this kind of network of places that's all based on, I mean, again, Corey touched on a lot of these things, that these humans are all the image of God and you have to go where the people are. And that does mean urban and rural. And you have to have some kind of 
strategy for how you do that in a way that reflects where people are in particular numbers. But people aren't absent in rural areas. Um, so I think that in, there's an important way for the church to be quite countercultural in modern you know, Western countries um, like each of our countries. Um, like I, I think that it's like in my own denomination in Corey's too, in the Free Church of Scotland, it's really great to see that there's a church planting program that's now well underway that is focusing on planting churches in urban areas, but also planting or revitalizing churches in rural areas as well. And where a lot of the strength that you have to gather to plant in rural areas is actually generated through urban churches. And um, I think that's great. And I think that in it's, it's actually just an example for wider Scotland to notice of people in an urban area who, who treat their rural neighbours as, as equals and, and who want to serve their, their rural neighbours uh, as urbanites. Well said. Uh, guys, this has been an, an excellent conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Stirred me to think in all kinds of ways. Um, thank you to the listeners for joining us. It's always excellent to have you with us. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do remember to rate it in whatever podcast app you use. Tell your friends about it. Also, if you like the podcast and you want to see it improve, and we do this on a shoestring budget of zero pounds and zero pence at the moment, um, as you can maybe tell sometimes in terms of audio quality and equipment, we have set up a donor box. Um, so it's donorbox.org slash grace in common. Um, if you like the podcast and want to see it improve and want to help us um, improve what we do, particularly through buying better mics, hosting software, and so on, um, then you are welcome to, um, and we'd really appreciate your support as listeners. We'll post the link to it in the show notes. Um, but for now, this is Grace in Common. <laughs>